production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, and welcome to the new, wonderful City Club of Cleveland, which for more than 100 years has been dedicated to conversations of consequence. It's aged well, kind of like their CEO, our friend Dan Malthrop. Happy birthday, Dan. My name is Beju Shaw, and I'm the CEO of the Greater Cleveland Partnership. And on this beautiful Chamber of Commerce Day, of Day here in Cleveland, I have the distinct honor of introducing our guest, Jim Free. Jim is a Clevelander who has one of the coolest jobs in the world and maybe in the entire universe. Now his official title is Associate Administrator for Exploration Systems Development Mission Director at NASA. Rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> so let me translate that for you. Jim leads NASA's Artemis mission. The mission that's leading us to the moon, to Mars, and beyond. That's a very cool job. NASA is synonymous with inspiration and innovation. And with Artemis, NASA will pioneer technologies to explore and build a base on the moon, and then NASA will take the next giant leap, sending astronauts to Mars. And they will do it with the most diverse astronaut crew in their history, inspired, innovative and inclusive. Some of us would call that all in. Now at the helm of these efforts is Jim, as I said again, a Clevelander. And the mission includes NASA Glenn, a center once led by Jim, and their 3,300 team members and many more partners, all of our neighbors right here in Cleveland. So when you hear that the path to the moon and Mars goes through Cleveland, you now know what that means. And that inspires us at GCP to be such strong advocates for growing NASA and NASA Glenn. The moderator for today's forum is Dr. Kirsten Allenbogen, CEO of the Great Lakes Science Center. Kirsten is also a great Clevelander. Her work and her team inspire the next generation of scientists and astronauts, individuals who may be researching on the moon or traveling to Mars and beyond. For those that are listening in today, if you have a question for our guests, please text or exit it in, meaning tweet it into the City Club. The text number is 330-541-5794. Members and friends, please join me in welcoming NASA's Jim Free. Thanks, Beijing. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, good afternoon. Beiju, thanks for the great introduction. And I would like to thank the City Club, Dan and Cynthia, for having me today, and Kirsten for for moderating the fireside chat. It is really great to be home. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, last night I got to go to my first Guardian games at the game of the year, which I'm ashamed to say, um, but I'm proud I got to one. Um, to see so many friends here today uh, is, is really great, and I appreciate that you would take the time to be here to hear about what is really the coolest job in the world. A lot of people say, um, why did I go back to NASA? And I've told the story, like, how do you say no when you get a call from uh, the deputy administrator and the associate administrator of NASA, who are both shuttle commanders, one of them only 
of the two of the female shuttle commanders where they say, hey, y y we, your country needs you to serve. Okay, that's tough anyway to say no to. And then, would you like to lead the return to the moon and then take in humans to Mars? Um, the fact that I had to think about that's a little embarrassing to admit. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it is great to, to be here today and share with you what NASA is doing. And, uh, and I made the, the conscious choice to, to not do slides, uh, not because I want you to look at me, but because um, I want you to listen to what I have to say, and we'll talk about a call to action for all of you later. So um, start thinking of your questions now, and I look forward to hearing those. So NASA is charged with pioneering space science and technology that propels the exploration of the moon, Mars, and beyond. Our organization, which someday I'll be able to tell the story of why it is titled what it is, but that, that's going to be a while. I think it's highly classified probably over another 50 years. But our organization, the Exploration Systems Development Mission Directorate, is responsible for defining and flying the Artemis missions and planning our Moon to Mars exploration approach. With Artemis, we're going back to the moon for long-term scientific discovery of the solar system, our home planet, and even the human body. And I'm excited that we'll be able to discover because everything that we learn fuels new scientific development. And Artemis is different than anything humanity has ever done before. It is a long-term effort. And it's about three things. First is science. Science is what drives our missions. And the value of the discoveries we'll continue to make is really impossible to estimate. Artemis will change how we understand the solar system and our place in it. The second thing is national posture. We continue to make space for everyone as we welcome new partners, international partners in America and around the world from our industry and ultimately US leadership is critical. And the third thing is inspiration. It's so great, great to see students here today because I believe that we're building the next generation STEM workforce, the Artemis generation. We hope that the Artemis missions inspire young people around the world to connect space exploration and the STEM careers that go with it. But Artemis is really a story of people. I think any great effort is really about the people that it takes on. And all those who make this journey possible through diverse thinking and ideas. And every state in America and 10 European countries have contributed to that first mission of Artemis One. In fact, more than 60 Ohio-based suppliers contribute to the development of the Orion spacecraft, our, our human vehicle, the Space Launch System rocket, and the ground systems in Florida. Ohio, as you all know, is the aerospace state, and our history is unrivaled by any other state when it comes to achievements in air and space. It's the home of 25 astronauts, the birthplace of the Wright brothers, the birthplace of John Glenn and Neil Armstrong, and just as Ohio was instrumental in our nation's aerospace first, first flight, first American to orbit the Earth, and the first steps on the moon, Ohio is once again shaping the future of aviation and space exploration. Recently, the NASA, and the NASA Glenn and the University of Illinois Chicago uh, published an economic impact report. And, and let's talk about some of that. Um, NASA contributed $2.4 billion to this state's economy. 300 million of which came directly from NASA funding for our Moon to Mars exploration efforts. Not because I'm from Ohio, but that's just how it worked out. Uh, <laughs> the agency's activities in Ohio supported nearly 11,000 jobs, 
increasing labor income by more than $835 million and generating $82 million in local and state taxes. From testing the Orion spacecraft and the space environments complex out in Sandusky to the research and innovations in chemical, electrical, and nuclear propulsion technology, the work at Glenn is crucial in developing and innovating technology in support of our Artemis missions. Last year, we successfully flew our uncrewed Artemis flight test to the moon, and what a fantastic mission it really was. It's still surreal to me. It was our first step in a series of increasingly complex missions. Artemis One mission built on four generations of NASA human spaceflight experience. It demonstrated our leadership in human spaceflight and validated the safety and performance of the Orion spacecraft. We performed 124 flight tests in orbit. It performed so well that we were able to add another 21 to buy down the risk for our first human mission. It was critical to ensure we're ready to carry astronauts on Artemis II. And that's where our focus is today, is on Artemis II. That crew, I encourage you to read about these people, Christina Cook, Jeremy Hansen, Victor Glover, and our incredible commander, Reed Wiseman. I am so proud of this crew, and we're happy to have an international astronaut on our first crew, representing the global, of nature, global nature of what Artemis is for the long haul. Their mission's gonna be a 10-day flight around the moon, where we'll test our life support systems, the handling qualities of the vehicle, and really stress the human interface. What we learned from Artemis II will help prepare for every human mission. The commander said it best when he said, I hope when people look at Artemis II, they're looking at it from how that helped us step foot on Mars. And that's such a great perspective. They are training today. They, they just had a big event this week down in Kennedy where they practiced the run out to the launch pad, going up the launch pad, going out the crew access arm. Um, it's a tremendous milestone for us, and we're well on our way to Artemis II. The uh, Artemis II Orion spacecraft and crew module and European Space Agency build service module, which is overseen by NASA Glenn, are at the Kennedy Space Center today going, uh, undergoing final testing. The mobile launcher is out at the launch pad today doing testing as we speak. The space launch system booster segments are actually on rail cars on their way to Florida. I saw a tweet this morning. Somebody saw the train going by, took a video of it. It's pretty cool. The space launch system is assembled in New Orleans. All four engines are installed, and early next year, it's gonna be shipped to Florida. And we're targeting late 2024 for this first but essential step back to the moon. Our next mission, Artemis III, will mark humanity's first return to the lunar surface in over 50 years. And we'll once again make history, not just because of that return, but because we will land the first woman on the moon. This time we'll land at the lunar south pole, where we know the history of the solar system is, different, is, is, uh, is captured differently than where we landed around the equator with Apollo. We also know that's where there's water ice, where we hope to use it to help our crews be sustained on the surface of the moon. Once launched, the Orion capsule and our human lander will dock in uh, lunar orbit. Two crew members will remain in lunar orbit, and two will descend to the surface for their six and a half day mission on the moon. NASA, our contractors, our international uh, partners and suppliers continue to make incredible progress on Artemis III. The crew module is being built in Florida as we speak. 
the heat shield is being populated, the crew module ad adapter is in process. We're building spacesuits today for that mission, and our human lander is in development, and we'll fly at least one uncrewed demo mission that lands on the moon. Keep your fingers crossed for that next SpaceX launch. For Artemis 4 and beyond, we will begin staging our missions from Gateway, our lunar space station, in a very unique orbit around the moon that gives us exposure to nearly 98% of the lunar surface, so wherever we want to land. Gateway will be a home away from home for astronauts, equipped with li living quarters, laboratories, and docking ports for other spacecraft. Gateway will be instrumental in developing our autonomous technologies and capabilities to support moon and Mars exploration for many years to come. It will serve also as a platform for heliophysics and biologic science as well. We're making great progress for Artemis 4 and 5. It's substantial work going on really across the world. We actually have hardware right now through our Artemis 7 mission, and we have contracts through Artemis 9. This is not a paper program. It's in subsequent missions, we'll add in rovers for the crews to travel farther away from the landing sites to do the science we need followed soon by living quarters on the surface. We have 63 Moon to Mars objectives that have been agreed to with our partners and stakeholders. We built the first segment of an architecture for the Moon, and in just a couple months, we'll complete the initial plans for two more segments, including the segments to go to Mars. These objectives and this architecture are NASA's plan defining both short-term and long-term missions. It's not just our organization's plan, it's the entire agency's plan. It's been developed with inputs from our workforce, industry, academia, and all of our international partners. As I said, this is not short-term paper-only plan as you've heard about the amount of hardware that we have for these future missions. So here's your call to action, right? You can't just show up and listen to some government bureaucrat talk without being expected to have your call to action. We need your engagement and support. So when you leave here, I encourage you to go look at our Moon to Mars objectives. Look at our architecture. See what interests you, where you want to participate and get excited about your space program. This is not mine, right? I stand here because all of you pay taxes to have a space program. So this is your space program. You'll, you'll always hear skepticism about spending dollars in space. Perhaps some of you today are uh, here or listening to this are some of those skeptics. But I assure you that every dollar of your space program is spent right here on Earth, employing people and creating tax revenue, as I described earlier. <clears throat> I assure you that it also creates the inspiration in a young person to pursue a career that only benefits this nation in the long run. Ultimately, what we build, test, and discover on the moon will determine the human capacity to live and work in deep space for long periods of time, setting NASA and all of us on a steady path for our next giant leap, sending the first astronauts to Mars. Artemis missions will bring the world along for the journey, helping to change humanity's perspective of our place in the universe. People around the world are helping create this future. It is a global plan. It begins with our NASA team. Those that work on this team now have helped us take this first step and are essential to what we are doing in the next and future missions. If you work in industry or academia, you have a place in our future. If you're a student or early in your career, there are incredible opportunities for you to build a future in space while improving life here on Earth. 
It's really a dream that we can all share, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts on that dream and your participation in that dream. And thanks for being here today. Well, that was great. Uh, I'm inspired, and I know a lot about what you do. But before we, I, I have a lot of questions, but before we jump into some of the questions on the very compelling mission you talked about, your bio at the beginning was pretty short, and you have had a terrific career. Give us some insight. What was the spark? What was the start of your interest in space, your interest in NASA? How'd that happen? Yeah, I think um, it, it probably started with airplanes. Uh, we. We, uh, we, we lived on the, the flight path into Hopkins when I was growing up. Ah. And so I, I would watch the planes land all the time. Even just the other day, I was flying uh, somewhere, which I don't remember. But um, I, heard the, I heard the gear go down, and I, was like, I started timing in my head, because I used to think about when I could see the gear go down and how far they were from the airport. So that somewhere is still that kid in me. Um, and, then, and then, you know, being, you start reading about aircraft and, and explorers and you start learning about space. So I, I've, I've loved aircraft probably first and then space as, I, as, as a young person, probably five or six, and then you start reading about Apollo, uh, which had just ended at that point, and then seeing the shuttle come online. It, I think that's where it really all started for me. It's a good reminder that NASA's aviation and aerospace, yes, like is. both. Yes. Well, so then you, you focused on engineering, you went into NASA pretty early, but, but give us a sense of some of that trajectory. I mean, you, you could have gone in a lot of different directions. Yeah, you know, I, I put a lot of faith in the people who mentored me, um, probably formally and informally, and I, I just trusted people, hey, we need your help over here, can you go do that? Or, um, you know, I would see Boy, this, I, I, I told a story once about some, I was in a meeting at NASA Glenn where all the, the senior executives were at the table, and now I'm one of those senior executives, and I was like a person in the back row, and everybody's like, yeah, this is a great meeting, it's a great meeting. I was like, we didn't do anything in this meeting. <laughs> and I, I'm like, hey, uh, to the deputy center director at the time, his name was Rich Christensen, hey, Rich, you know, what did we really do in this meeting? He's kind of like, okay, well, you're so smart, go figure it out. Um, so. You know, it's kind of like stepping in where I saw something needed to be done or people trusted me uh, to, to try and go do new things, and I just kind of followed that path. So I talked about the um, Pam Melroy and Bob Cabana calling me. Uh, they're two folks who I've known for years. I, I respect tremendously, and they asked me to come do something, and I said, sure. I love how trust is part of the career path. Uh. Well, all right, so let's, let's dive into the mission. Um, and I tend to think I know a fair amount about the Artemis mission. So I did not expect you to describe it as a story of people. Say more about that. I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it in the Apollo context first, right? It's 400,000 people working on Apollo, trying to achieve a goal for the nation that was set by the president. And I, I include people because I see how hard people work every day. Um, people, and, and I, I know there's folks here that can identify that you give your career, you give your life to your career. And uh, there's something very passionate about space. 
and you have to have passion to drive through um, some of the challenges that we face. I think we, NASA, there's a reason we need more marketing people at NASA because we don't tell our story well enough. Um, stuff we do is really, really hard. It's hard to keep people safe in space. And we do it every day on Space Station, and we've been doing it for 20, to be 23 years this year, right? This is 23rd year of continuous human presence in space. That is really hard to do. There's a lot of challenges out there. And it comes down to people who want to work hard and just have such incredibly unique knowledge to do that. And for me, that's, uh, that's what I see when I, when I go around and have the chance to talk with people. I, I always say, and I said this when I was center director too, there's not a thing I'm going to do in a day that's going to help somebody solve the technical problem. I would, I try, right? Hey, I have this great idea, and they're like, yeah, it's really cool, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Headquarters guy. Um, but if I can take uh, barriers away for, from people so they can get the work done, that's what I need to do. I need to fight the battles on the budget. I need to tell our story on Capitol Hill. That's my job now. I need to help make a decision that maybe is, takes a lot of risk um, because then I'm taking the burden off these people that are, that are in the clean room every day or ultimately looking at those four human beings who I read their names to you and looking at them and saying, hey, we've done everything we can to bring you home alive. Right? There, there's a moment when you work on a human spaceflight mission where you sign a certification, certica certificate of flight readiness. Right. And it's, it, there's a whole bunch of those that move up as you go from like the engineer to the program manager to systems engineer, program manager, up, and I, I chair the flight readiness review, and you sign that, and it's like I'm, I'm committing that I've done everything I can to, for those people's lives. And that's ultimately what our job is, is to, to bring them home safe. So it's a very different set of tasks in front of you at NASA. It's pretty um, cool, yeah. All right, well, so take us back then. I mean, you've been at NASA for some time. Talk about the changes you're seeing um, at the agency. And, and mm -hmm. I know part of the story is the people, but um, the diversity's changed. Uh, it's a different team approach. Uh, say more about that. It is, yeah. I mean, you know, our core values be, is uh, one of them is being inclusive. And, and you heard Beiju talk about the diverse astronaut corps and okay. the diverse side of our, our workforce is just about that, is bringing new ideas, new backgrounds, and, and making us look like the society. I talked about it's your space program, right? Making it look like it's our space program. So that's, that's the first important part of it. Um, and, and then the other part is, boy, how we've changed of how the commercial industry has changed because what I believe NASA has enabled. And this is another one where I'll say, I don't think we talk enough about what we've done. Um, SpaceX has been incredibly successful at, launch, at their launches, both of crew and cargo for us, and of their satellite launches, Starlink uh, on top of that. NASA was the first investor in SpaceX in terms of, hey, we're going to give you a, a challenge of bringing cargo to the space station, which drove the development of their Falcon launch vehicle, Falcon 1, then Falcon 9. And then we're going to trust you with crew, drove their development of the Dragon capsule being human rated. Now we're, um, and now they've opened that up. They've brought launches back to the US that were drifting away to other countries. 
So I think NASA has enabled a commercial space industry. They're flying private astronaut missions. Um, that's because of what I believe NASA has enabled. And now we've taken that next step and given, that, given SpaceX a contract for our lunar lander. We've given Blue Origin a contract for their lunar lander um, for our, uh, our later missions. So we're hopefully enabling, and they've put in dollars. Um, we have that for our spacesuits, that we're buying that as a service. So I think the agency has changed into kind of the, I don't want to say we're not monolithic anymore because ultimately we're a bureaucracy, but we're not this monolith, we're the only game in town. And then when you look at Artemis, we've also brought in the international community. We've signed what's called the Artemis Accords. Um, I think it's 29 signatories now, uh, countries, to talk about how we're going to operate in space, how we're going to be transparent in space. That's, uh, NASA has this unique political soft power that we've had for years um, that has benefited, I think, the rest of the, the U.S. government. So we're trying to be inclusive both uh, of our workforce, um, our commercial partners, our contracts, and then also the international community. Okay, so you're talking about the partnerships. Bring that home to Chicago. I know you're NASA HQ now, but... But, you know, come back to Ohio I, I for do, a minute. I do come home to Ohio. Yeah. Uh, and we're very grateful for that. And you gave really great numbers, right? 11,000 jobs, 2.4 billion in the Ohio economy. You talked about 60 based Ohio suppliers. Um, you talked about 835 million labor income increase in the state. I mean, that's impressive. So there's a lot of partnerships behind that. There's a different way of um, really collaborating, it sounds like, that, that has happened over the years to make that kind of economic impact in Ohio. Yeah, I, I, think, it's, uh, I think it's making folks aware that NASA Glenn exists. Um, that's, that's something that I know Beju and Marty, uh, Marty going back a long way with me when I was deputy and center director here, um, we, we, making folks aware that it's there, but also how can it help the community? How can the technologies that NASA has, the know-how that NASA has, help businesses bring their products across the finish line or, or drive, a, um, uh, drive a change in their company or a new, uh, new pursuit that they might have, um, let alone just having 3,000 jobs next to the airport? Um, yeah. and, and I know some of you have heard me say this, if we were trying to bring a company here that had 3,000 jobs, we'd be dying to do that for those numbers that, that you just went through. Um, we need to do everything we can. The community needs to, I can't say we anymore. I'm the headquarters guy now, but if I were a NASA Glenn person, I would say we need to do everything we can to keep it here. Um, and because of those opportunities. And, and NASA has great ways to partner uh, with their small business. So NASA's small business program, I think it's one of the best in the government. Somebody can tell me, uh, Kurt, you, you probably agree with that. Um, there's so much access for small businesses into NASA. We have prescribed goals, particularly NASA Glenn has highly subscribed goals for small business procurements. Um, every, NASA, uh, every NASA center has a small business advocate, uh, small business resources to go to, to help out, to, to create a partnership, to transition technology, um, to, to, bid on, uh, to bid on contracts. There's a partnerships office at NASA Glenn. 
where folks can uh, have a Space Act agreement with NASA, which is a way to exchange data that NASA protects yours and you get access to NASA data. So I think as those have grown, those kind of partnerships have grown too. I'm, and I'm only hitting on the Ohio part of it. Which we love. Yes. <laughs> Just for this moment. We, we know we won't hold that to you all the time. Um, well, all right, so now let's zoom way back out because you gave some very vivid descriptions of what's going on to get the crew ready mm -hmm. for the launch. Our, our crewed mission to the moon is very exciting and I feel like I have those pictures in my head now of all the tests going on, the video even you know heading down, uh, down the railway. It's hard to imagine what a crewed mission to Mars will look like. Mm -hmm. So paint that picture. Yeah, you know, I talked about our architecture review that we have coming up, um, and in that, we're, we're there's like seven decisions we have to make that will cascade into like a hundred uh, around Mars. And the first is, are you ready to go? Um, and that's a lot of why we're doing things on the lunar surface, because partial Partial gravity will make our systems behave a little bit differently. Zero gravity makes them behave differently. So we need a little bit of runtime on the moon. We also need to understand the effects on the human body of long duration spaceflight. We're doing that right now on space station. Frank Rubio just surpassed 365 days longest uh, US uh, mission. Tremendous, he went up there thinking he was gonna stay six months and you know, then he's like, hey, guess what? You get to stay another six months. Um, it's been tr a tremendous sacrifice by Frank and his family, but we, we learned so much from those long duration missions because right now with our technology, six months to get to Mars, six months to get home. And your body goes through so much in that adaptation to gravity. And if you think about it, you go out for six months, you get adapted to zero gravity, and then you have to land and operate in, you know, a partial gravity environment, and you only have 30 days because you need to get back up to get home. So you want to maximize those 30 days, but that adjustment to gravity is tough. So we need to design our systems to allow the crew to adapt and still get work done. And then we need to put them on a vehicle to come back another six months and enter them safely back in, into Earth. So it's challenges with radiation, galactic cosmic radiation outside of Van Allen belts, very strong effect on the human body. Um, uh, deterioration of muscle and bone, you have to keep that um, uh, updated so you have to exercise all the time. How do we keep food safe for that long? We have a mission right now in Houston where we locked four people in a simulated Mars habit, habitat and they were locked in with all their food for a year. They can grow stuff, they'll have that opportunity, but we gave them food for a year. Um, so. How do, we, how do we keep that food fresh? How do we have enough water for them? It, ironically, if you put water in the food, you can recover water in the food, you don't have to carry as much dedicated water. How do we deal with the carbon dioxide that's built up? How do we generate oxygen? We're trying to get to like 99% uh, oxygen recovery so that we don't have to take all these supplies basically for, for 13 months of keeping them safe. Um, and you can't take everything down to the surface of Mars at once, so you gotta launch stuff in advance and land it on the surface. And make sure it lands before you launch the crew, which means your mission starts seven years before you wanna land the crew. So all of that stacks up into 
what do we have to plan on each of our Artemis missions to be ready to take that step to Mars? That's incredible. It's, uh, <laughs> that's a very vivid picture, thank you. <laughs> um, well, I, I know we want to move to questions soon, but let me ask one more because we mm -hmm. do have a number of student groups here today. We've got groups um, from Shaker Heights Innovation Center, we've got groups from Lutheran West, and MC Squared STEM High School. So talk a little bit about what advice you have for them. I mean, when we think about who's going to be going to Mars, well, mm -hmm. they may be in high school right now, right? Yeah, so absolutely. what's your advice? Well, well, first, thanks for everything that you do at the Science Center to, to inspire folks. It's really great. Um, boy, advice. Uh, you know, I, I think I was not the best student. Um, I, I, you know, it's it's great to watch my kids now because they are just like so much better than I ever was. Um, I was not the best student, and you know, it, it took me it, it took me a little bit of time to figure out like what was I good at. Uh, and I, I learned that I was really good at asking questions, and I still do that a lot today. You ask questions for understanding. Number one, usually the question that you ask is what everybody else wants to ask but doesn't have the courage to. I'm not saying I am this ultimate courage person, but I, I just, if I'm going to be involved where my first job was very much about keeping people safe um, because we dealt with some hazardous chemicals, I want to make sure I understand it. But as you ask more questions, you can really develop how you think and break down problems. And I still try and rely on that today. All those statistics I just gave you about going to Mars um, are just me trying to understand it. That's how I picked it up, or, and I get to work with really smart people um, designing and working on these missions. So I think first is asking questions. Um, I talked about a mentor earlier, and, and there's formal mentoring or there's people that just kind of give you advice. You can kind of look at a mentor that way. And I've had very good people who've, who've given me advice. And um, listen to people who tell you stuff you don't want to hear because that usually means they're trying to challenge you and make you grow. And then when I found uh, a couple mentors, I always found that people see stuff in you that you can't possibly see. I've said that line before because I think I live by that. I, and, and if somebody asks you to do something, they believe you can do it, whether you really believe you can or not. And, um, and that, you know, do, did, when I got that call to do this job, and really, I'd say almost every job, I don't think I could ever do the jobs that I do. I don't, uh, there's a lot of imposter syndrome. <laughs> like, what am I doing sitting up here talking about it? Um, but, but I think when people believe in you, they, they see, see potential you can't possibly see in yourself. That's probably the advice I'd have. Well said. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Free. We are about to begin the audience Q&A. I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here at the City Club, and we are joined by Jim Free, Associate Administrator for Exploration Systems Development Mission Directorate at NASA. He is talking about what's next in deep space human exploration. Moderating the conversation is Dr. Kirsten Ellenbogen, President and CEO of the Great Lakes Science Center. 
We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org or our live radio broadcast at 89.7 WKSU IdeaStream Public Media. If you'd like to text a question for our speaker, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and City Club staff will try to work it into the program. May we have our first question, please? Yes. All right, so we are gonna start with a text question. It says, with another government shutdown looming on the horizon, how is Artemis preparing to minimize disruptions to testing and meeting milestones, as well as maintain employee morale and retention as these shutdowns occur? Well, I feel like somebody that works with me sent the question <laughs> in. <laughs> um, yeah, so there, there's a process for the for the shutdown that we, we put this, this is the accepted list, like EX. Uh, um, so everybody, we, we put a justification, here's why we think we need to, to move it forward. For us, it's, we have the mobile launch tower at the launch pad today, um, but we don't wanna like unplug it and walk away, because it's, you know, millions and millions of dollars sitting out there. Um, and plus, we need we want to keep the momentum and schedule going for Artemis too. Uh, we try and keep the all the hardware going. Orion, SLS. So we put a list together, and then try and get that approved uh, up the up the up the chain. Uh, employee morale, you know, I, I th it's it's kind of interesting because everybody breathes a sigh of relief if you get a continuing resolution. I believe that the hardest part for morale, and, and I'll only speak for myself here as a government person, is all the work you do and then the uh, continuing resolution gets passed. That work goes uh, unnoticed, and that's a lot of work to get there. So I worry about that morale. If we get a shutdown, you know, we are in a bureaucracy that works, and a government that works the way it does. Um, it's unfortunate um, that that has to happen. I'm really walking a fine line here. Um, <laughs> it's frustrating that's got to happen as a human being, um, but but I the effect on morale, the effect on our budget. You know, if if we get a shutdown, we have to do a lot of things with our contractors that ultimately drives up our costs and our program costs go up. And it's like, hey, NASA can't manage, but that's one of the factors that drives up our cost in the long run, and uh, that's the the frustrating stuff. But like I say, when you join the government, you know you're signing up for the bureaucracy, and I think NASA's this unique, we're this incredibly innovative agency that's a bureaucracy, and those two tug at each other. And when they're in balance, it's really good. Uh, when they're out of balance, it can be frustrating. So, yeah, it's part of the job. Hi, thank you for your presentation. My name's Kaylin Fazio, and I'm a second year law student at CSU. I have a question. It might be hard for small businesses and startups to survive from NASA contracts alone, especially keeping and maintaining a skilled workforce. There are a lot of regulatory barriers to entering commercial space outside of gov government contracts. How does NASA support small space businesses and startups outside of awarding contracts? Or is there another agency or mechanism to support these businesses surviving in the commercial space realm? Thank you. Uh, so the head of NASA Glenn Procurement's right there. I'll defer to his. <laughs> Kurt, go ahead. Um, yeah, I, I think, so I, I talked about the, the resources for small businesses in terms of access to procurements and 
dedicated procurement dollars that are for small businesses only. NASA also has some small business innovative uh, research uh, grants that, that go on. They're multi-phase. Actually, uh, a lot of government agencies have them that deal with space, Space Force, uh, as an example. And a lot of times, and NASA also has, uh, in our Space Technology Mission Directorate, some opportunities for companies to partner with larger space companies to bring their technology forward. Um, and all of those have a tremendous amount of resources uh, at, at the NASA websites, at the small business in particular at NASA. And so it helps make connections with the larger companies so you're not just dependent on NASA needs, you know, four widgets and we're gonna buy four widgets and you have to tool up for this whole this whole thing, not just tooling like machine tooling, but all of the things that a government federal contract demands. Um, and then some of the things we have actually take some of those demands of typical federal acquisition things out of the way, federal acquisition regulations, the FAR. Never, by the way, did I think I would ever give a talk where I used the phrase FAR. Uh, <clears throat> I think I just lost my engineering credibility. Um, but a lot of our contracts help move those out of the way um, so that small businesses can, can thrive and then hopefully make connections with commercial companies that can use their technology as well. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you for being here today. Um, I was teaching in 1986 when school teacher Krista McAuliffe was killed uh, in the Challenger disaster. And it was the first time my students saw me cry. My question to you is, when that happened, um, were you a little discouraged with the program or did it motivate you to try harder to make sure that didn't happen again? Uh, so I, I was actually sitting in the senior lounge at St. Ignatius High School when, when that happened. Um, and it, what's more, obviously it was incredibly disappointing and sad. Um, for Krista McAuliffe and, and the other six crew members on, on Challenger. And what's very tangible for me is Columbia um, and the fact that we as an organization failed a second time for the same reason with organizational silence. Um, and I think everybody in NASA, whether you work in human spaceflight or not, um, lives with what happened in, in both of those. Now in Columbia, like less than 50% of today's NASA workforce was with the agency when Columbia happened. So our challenge is how do we continue to convey that we can't accept organizational silence and, and kill people again? Um, and that it's very, uh, it's very tangible for me when, when we meet with the crew. Um, but it's very tangible for me every day because I have to think about what words am I using that could be suppressing what someone wants to bring up, uh, especially in my position, not because I'm in this lofty position and look at me, but in my, I look at me as Jim. I don't look at me in the position, but other people look at me in that position. So if I say I don't like, you know, eight and a half by 11 paper, and I start the meeting that way, or I finish it before anybody else, Who's going to want to say, you know, I like A4 paper? Um, I'm using a silly example, but you, it's how you set a tone to allow that discussion to happen. 
And we have a very formal process in NASA uh, called the dissenting opinion process where uh, anyone at any level can disagree with a position and there's a formal way by which their disagreement can be brought up, up the management chain so that they feel like they're heard and their concern is dispositioned. Um, I would say it's not formally exercised all the time. It's informally exercised a lot because we allow for the dissenting opinion to happen in meetings by calling it out. Does anybody disagree with this? Um, we also all take training every year, training about Columbia to go through where the mistakes were made. Um, so um, it, it doesn't, what we do is very risky. So, but we try and take every bit of risk out, and it's not just in the hardware, it's in our process, and it's in hearing when people disagree. So there's no guarantee that won't ever happen again, because uh, it is really hard, but I hope, I hope it never does. Uh, thanks for your coming here and your great presentation. I'm Ignatius67, by the way. Um, and I'm gonna give you a choice. Uh, of two questions. All right. The first is you mentioned SpaceX. I presume you were involved in the negotiations with space, SpaceX. So your, your first check, if you so choose, you can tell us a story, an interesting, startling, or funny story about Elon Musk. That's, <laughs> that's option number one. Okay, how about the, how's the second question looking? <laughs> option number two. Option number two is actually related to uh, the, the, the last question, which you had an exquisite answer to. And that is, um, and before I ask it, I gotta say, I, I, there's nothing more exciting for me than um, a person stepping out onto the surface of the moon. And that, that, that vision, that history is exhilarating. Um, that being said, I have recently read Carl Sagan's uh, Pale Blue Dot. And he made a, a pretty strong case for automated space travel over human space travel, uh, citing the successes of automated space travel, the risks of human space travel. And in fact, NASA has had an incredible success story with automated space travel, uh, Explorer, the, uh, the Mars rovers, the Hubble, uh, are incredible success stories. You yourself have articulated the costs and the risks of putting people, putting humans on board. Um, tell us what the benefits are. Why are, why do we, why are we putting people on? Sure, sure. Now, you know, it, it, the, the decision what you do with humans, what you do with robots is uh, sometimes separate, sometimes the same, because you, sometimes you want that pairing. Eventually, you know, right now, there's, there's samples being taken on the surface of Mars. Um, some of those are going to be picked up by the Mars sample return mission. Some could be picked up by humans. But the flexibility that humans bring to the equation when you get on the surface. I, I talked about our ultimate goal is science. Um, when we send a, a, an astronaut out and you know, in the spacesuit, they can walk a kilometer and a half. Um, but I don't have to pre-program what I need that astronaut to do. I can give them three tools and say, hey, take these three tools on your tool belt 
and they can use them a variety of different ways and they can make their decisions without me having to decide five years before how to program that in, how to make sure I have all the right tools there for the robot. Now, it doesn't say robots aren't great, right? What's happening on Mars and has happened on Mars is truly incredible. And we're going to send a rover to the South Pole called Viper. We, NASA, are going to send Viper to, to look for volatiles, the, the water ice I talked about. But I can tell the crew member, hey, you know, go, go look for this type of rock. They will all take geology to training. They're taking it now. Um, and they can determine, boy, that's, that's, a, that's a great rock, or this isn't. And, or I, I might want to walk 500 feet over here and not wait five days to transit 500 feet. And, and within a minute, I can walk another 500 feet and look at a different rock. So it's the flexibility of what the human brings in real-time decision-making and capability that really distinguishes it and, and return, the, re the quicker return we get uh, from that. So uh, it is a trade we do, but, but we don't do them exclusively from each other. Whatever we could do with robots, we will do. Uh, but we also then trade it against how much does it cost, how long does it take, um, and sometimes the human missions are going to take longer, but they have a greater return. And that's kind of a, as we look at the architecture that I talked about, our objectives are independent of, for the most part, uh, humans. Some things we say we, we're going to do this with humans. Um, and then we trade in the architecture of how we're going to do it, use cases we call them, and then the elements we need to do that. So an element could pop out the end and say it's a robotic rover versus using a human for that. Now, sending a human into a permanently shadowed region uh, of the moon that has never seen sunlight and is, I'm going to get the, you know, minus 200 degrees, um, we may not want to do that with a human. Um, but we might want to send a, a smaller rover that the human can put out there and let it go down the crater and bring, bring a sample back um, instead of building the whole rover to land transit over, go down, bring it back, set, put on something to come back. Instead, the human just grabs it from the small rover and brings it back. So it's a continuous trade against what we're trying to do to achieve those 63 objectives. Good afternoon. I'm a student at Solon High School and a member of the Youth Forum Council with the City Club. My question is specifically with so many international signatories to the Artemis Accords, what are your thoughts on the geopolitical ramifications, particularly with Russia, China, and India? So the accords are, um, are, are the principles by which we're going to operate. So they are an important geopolitical message that we're going to be open. We're going to share our, <clears throat> our data. We're going to be transparent about what we're going to do. We're going to operate with respect. We're not going to disturb sites where other folks have already landed on the moon, and we're going to do things peacefully. Um, that's our statement. That's what 28 other countries have decided to say that we're going to operate the same way, and we hope more people will sign on and agree that that's the way that they're going to operate too. That's a very important choice that every country has to make. Uh, Germany just signed last week. I, I was fortunate enough to be at the signing ceremony for that. And you would think 
why does it take so long for Germany to decide to do that? They had to make sure, not that they disagreed with the principles, but what were the implications of, of, for that on them as a nation? And, uh, and they made that choice. Um, as I said, I hope other countries make that same choice because I think that's how we should all explore. Um, hello, thank you for being here today. Um, kind of building on to that question that he just asked, like how will you split land on moon and Mars with like other countries? Like do you own part of it or is it like how countries are with Antarctica? Like how, is, how does that work? That's yeah, a great question. Thank you for being here today and thank you for that last question too. Um, that's part of the principles. Uh, you can't, the Outer Space Treaty, I think it's the Outer Space Treaty again, I've said the FAR and the Outer Space Treaty in the same, in the same talk. Um, the Outer Space Treaty says you can't own land on the moon. Um, and there's a lot of people that draw the, the similarity to Antarctica, right? You don't own, own parts of it. You, you explore for scientific reasons. I think the thing that we will have to deal with is when you use the resources, if there's water ice there, which we believe it is, it, we believe there is. Um, how, do we, how do we take that and use that for our purposes um, without impacting others? So I talked about not landing by other people. Um, we don't want folks to land where our Apollo missions landed because we believe they're uh, you know, important sites for human history. We don't want them dis disturbed. We don't want to land on top of a country-wise rover. Um, but we want to access that, but we're doing it for scientific purposes. So that, that's the thing that the Accords try and say is we're not just going to abuse the land. We're not going to leave the, leave the moon like we did the Earth. Um, uh, but we don't expect to own property, but we would like to, the Accords say, we'll respect the sites where we've landed and others have landed as well. All right, and our last text question, are there any specific goals in the upcoming Artemis missions that has you particularly excited? Uh, yeah, I mean, boy, I, I, I don't know that I'm not, a, I'm scared to death of some of these missions because uh, our Artemis four mission right now, I always talk about our schedule, it has 11 lines on it. And everybody's like, oh, 11 lines, that's not bad. Those are 11 different elements that have to come together for that mission to be successful. Um, I, I, I can't, not think about Artemis II with the crew launching for the first time and like going out and getting in that vehicle and then watching them as they go by the moon um, and, uh, and, and just hearing, hearing in their voices what they're seeing. I think Artemis III, the, when we land, uh, how can you not be excited about seeing someone step out on that lander I think much like Artemis One, uh, I've said it before. I uh, felt like I didn't breathe for 26 days on Artemis One, and and we landed in the ocean, and like I kind of leaned over and put my hands on my knees, um, and just took this big deep breath. And I think that's what I'm most excited about is seeing the crew come home safe from every one of those missions, um, and they'll accomplish great things I know along the way. But ultimately, that's probably what I'm most excited about. All right, friends, Jim Free with Kirsten Ellen Bogan.
Indie Club would like to thank uh, our friend Beiju Shah for his support and also for the, providing the intro today uh, at the forum. Also would like to welcome guests at the tables hosted by Lutheran West High School, MC Squared STEM High School, Shaker Heights High School Innovative Center, Great Lakes Science Center, Greater Cleveland Partnership, and the NASA Glenn Research Center. Thank you all for being here today. Next Friday, September 29th, the City Club will host a discussion with writer Charlene Hunter-Galt, winner of this year's Annisfield Wolf Book Awards Lifetime Achievement Award. And be sure to join us on Friday, November 3rd for the 2023 State of the Great Lakes. Dr. Richard Spinrad, administrator of the National Oceanic and Administ Atmospheric Administration, will join to talk about climate change's impact on our Great Lakes. You can learn more about these forums and others at cityclub.org. And thank you once again to Jim Free and Dr. Ella Bogan. And thank you, members and friends of the City Club. I'm Cynthia Connolly. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.